And it came about that when Solomon had finished praying this entire prayer and supplication to the Lord, he arose. You don't need to turn, just look at it later. He arose from before the altar of the Lord, from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread out toward heaven. And he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice, saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people, Israel, according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he promised through Moses, his servant. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us that he may incline our hearts to himself to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments and his statutes and his ordinances which he commanded our fathers. Let your heart, therefore, be wholly devoted to the Lord our God, to walk in his statutes and keep his commandments as at this day. This blessing occurred at the dedication of Solomon's temple, the building of his father David's dream had now been completed. And David and Solomon stood, the fulfillment of his father's dream had been the number one item on his agenda from the day he ascended to the throne. Frankly, his attitude toward the past and his connection with it is worthy, is uh, admirable. For after all, he knew that he would not be where he was. He would not have the opportunity of being king had it not been for his father David's efforts. And he understood that were it not for the exploits of his father, and the fact that his father named him as his successor, he would not be where he was. And so he set out to fulfill and extreme and extend the dreams of his inheritance. And now in deference to David and as a symbol to his connectedness with the past, that temple stood. I like this sense of kinship from between one generation to another. For no one is an island unto himself or herself. We did not begin from nothing, but we all came into the stream of connectedness that flows from the distant past. And I sense that this morning in a unique way as I come to this time of dedication. Edmund Burke said, we're all a part of an ongoingness, whether we like it or not. The present is built on the foundations of the past. And so Solomon took this inheritance that his father left him, and he did his best to fulfill it. And he took the dreams of his father, and he moved them toward completion. And in my judgment, that is how we are to live our three score and ten. 
We are to accept the, with gratitude the contributions of the past. And we are to accept the responsibility to present something to the future. And that's what we're about today. We've come to stand on holy ground and to acknowledge that we owe so much to so many. The very fact we're here is because those in the past have woven their lives into the fabric of this church. And we've come to affirm that we have a duty to make the past a success and to be stewards of the dynamics of history. And so as Solomon stood, he reminded his people of three things I want to remind you today. The first is that God will never let us off. One preacher, author, put it like this. In God's world, nobody gets by with anything in the end. For if God is, the foundations of this universe are rooted in righteousness. Because God is, no one will ultimately tip the beams of his justice. There was a notion that plagued Israel. I mean, it dogged their steps. It haunted the people of God. A notion that, that the prophets continually had to preach against, against which the righteous had to struggle. It was a tragic miscalculation of the nature of God. The notion was this. We'll build God's temple and we'll be exempt from God's judgment. Build God's temple in Jerusalem and it'll kind of insulate us against God's judgment and God's ways. As a matter of fact, Jeremiah picks up on it in his great prophecy and he said, you've made my house into a den of robbers. You plunder and exploit during the week and you flee to my house for security on the Sabbath day. It was a terrible miscalculation of the nature of God. We'll build God's temple and ultimately that's all God is concerned about. And so Solomon reminded them, let your whole heart be devoted to me and walk in my statutes and live my commandments as in this day for nothing will ever substitute for that. Listen carefully to my heart. The building of a building and its dedication, however glorious and for whatever purpose, will not substitute for giving God our whole heart and living according to his statutes. No building will ever substitute for that, for there is a higher mandate than the mandate of building buildings. As great as that mandate is, now it was a mandate to David. He couldn't conceive that the Ark of the Covenant would be left in a tent while he himself dwelt in a palace and his people dwelt in houses. And the mandate of God came, build my temple. That is a mandate. I'm not disparaging that. I'm saying there's a greater mandate than that. That mandate came first in the Garden of Eden and God said be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. It came the second time after the flood. Same mandate, be fruitful, multiply and replenish the earth. It came the third time on the Mount of Olives. Ye shall be witnesses, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them, building them. That's the higher mandate. 
hear my heart, we must understand that that is the higher mandate. A little lady was joining a group that was touring Westminster Abbey. Some of you may have been on one of those tours, that great museum of of, uh, church history, that citadel of historical religious greatness. And this monk was saying, there's Tyndall's tomb, and there's King James's tomb, and there's Charles Darwin's tomb. And this little lady, tourister from West Texas, Flatlands, had her little sneakers, had a little camera hanging around her neck. She couldn't stand it any longer. She just had to be heard. Her question had to be answered. And so he paused and she broke right in and said, pardon me, sir, has anybody been saved here lately? That's a question that keeps asking itself as I walk down the halls of this new building. Has anybody been saved here lately? I tell you, that's more important than building any building. Do I hear any amens? A missionary sat in a little hut in an African village and on the patio and he watched a black ant crawl up the leg of his chair and out onto a table on the patio and started eating some sugar that had been spilled there. In a little bit, that black ant disappeared. After a while, two black ants up the leg of that chair out on that patio table started eating that sugar. After a while, those two black ants disappeared. In a little bit, a whole trail of black ants coming up the leg of that chair out on that patio table. All of them started eating. Missionary said, what do you make of that? Except that in the way they communicate to one another, they said, we've found something good and we want to share it. I tell you, that's what excites me. That's the mandate that keeps raising its hand. Teacher sent a report card home, said Alvin, is just excels in creativity, ingenuity, in social integration, in, in participation, in, in responsiveness, and social activity. Now, if he could only learn to read and write. You, you see, there is a higher mandate than social integration and, and, and responsiveness, and there is a higher mandate that comes to the people of God than to erect one stone upon another and build a building. Not only is there a greater mandate, there's a greater material. You see, the problem of Israel was she sought to build spiritual and eternal things out of physical and material. material. And we're guilty of the same sin, I think, maybe in a sophisticated, more sophisticated and, and subtle way we do the same. We have an idea that the way you work with God and the way you develop a right relationship with God is to add sacrifice to sacrifice and stone to stone. What a terrible miscalculation of God's will. If that's the way we plan to develop our relationship with God, we're building something spiritual and eternal out of the wrong material. It won't work. There is a parable about a man who was told he could have anything he wished to have, and his wish was that he could have a newspaper written two years into the future, and it was mysteriously placed into his hands, and he hurriedly turned to the stock report 
And there with his little pencil and pad, he began to note all those stocks that had made tremendous gains and he made notation. He thought, in two years' time, I'll be rich. And he started to fold up his paper and his eyes glanced at the obituary column, saw his name there, saw the story of his death. Now the meaning of that parable is that a man can be rich but if he has no relationship with God, he's built his life on the wrong material. And the parable of this building we dedicate is this, that if we don't have a relationship with God that comes from within, no amount of stone upon stone is going to work. God's not going to let us off. There's a second thing he reminded his people, and I'm hurrying talking a lot faster than I normally do. The second thing he wanted to remind his people was that God is a God who never lets us down. Oh, did you see verse 56? Listen to what he said. Blessed be the Lord according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise which he promised through Moses his servant. He never lets us down. In the incomparable words of Hudson Taylor, God's work, God's way never lacks supplies. Oh, I wish we could learn that today. That's the lesson this dedication day should impact upon our lives. Some of you have learned that in your giving. I've understood. I've heard your testimonies. You've learned the secret of trusting God, of placing your life and your resources at his disposal. And you've found, haven't you, that God never lets you down. Lloyd Ogley tells about a boy, a man who came into his office late one night. He'd been counseling with him. He was his last counselee. He'd been counseling with him for for months and it's time he thought to get to the hard core of the fact and so he said I asked this boy this young man I asked him what do you think is the greatest need in your life and how can I help you and he said he shot back this answer I need a different God he said I've been listening to you talk about how God cares and how God loves and how God provides and how he meets needs but he said I, 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 I couldn't it's been hard for me to believe that because of what I learned from my environment and my parents, what I've heard from my church. He said, my concept of God is this cosmic policeman who wants to judge me for everything I do wrong. He said, I need a new God, not new in the sense that he's never been before, but new in the sense that I've never known him to be. He said, Lloyd Ogilvy, that's just exactly what we all need. For we have this concept of God that's so fuzzy, this diminutive God of our own making, God of the mountains, but not God of the valleys. It's what Moses needed. It had been 40 years since he left the palace of his, of his uh, family. It had been 40 years and God had not responded. I'm convinced that, 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 that Moses, when he took that Egyptian's life, he, he, knew, he just thought right then God's going to intervene. God's going to come down. God's going to take over here. It had been 40 years and God had done nothing. And then, boom, the burning bush. And that burning bush was the occasion, not of the call of Moses, not primarily. That burning bush was the occasion for God to reveal himself. Now God said, Moses, I want you to go down to Egypt. I want you to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses said, sure, 
what, what am I going to say? You walk into the to the palace of the highest political official in the land and you knock on the door and you say, let God's people go. And what if he says, who says? And God said, tell him I am sent you. You know what that word is in the Hebrew? It means the God who acts. What does that name mean? Tell him the God, the I am sent. He may have been saying, I am who I am. If, if that's the case, then his name was the revelation of his adequacy. You tell them that the adequate God sent you. I'm adequate. I'm all that I need to be to do everything I need done. It may mean, it may be that he was saying, I will bring about what I will bring about. If that's the case, his name was a revelation of his authority and he was saying, I have the authority to do everything I promised to do. I have the authority to act. And the, and the amazing thing is that between Exodus 5 and Exodus 15, Moses found both the adequacy and the authority of God. He found that God had the authority to do everything he promised and he had the adequacy to meet every one of his needs. And so God was saying to Moses, you just go down there and you tell him that I am sent you and I'll be authoritative and I'll be adequate in your life. And that's the picture of God I want you and me to take into the uncertainty. That this God who created us, the God who rescued Israel and inspired the prophets and gave his son, this God we worship, is a God who is authoritative. He, he speaks and it's so and he has adequacy to meet every need we have. We can go into tomorrow absolutely convinced that God has all that's necessary for us. In South Africa, a wealthy South African businessman went down to buy a new car, a Rolls Royce. He reached into his pocket and he had a roll of bills. That Rolls Royce at that time cost $60,000. He said, I like that Rolls Royce sitting right over there. When that salesman saw that chunk of cash in his hand, he just, wow, he could already start counting his commission. The guy said, before I take that car, before I give this money, I want to know one answer. How, much, how many horsepower does that car have? Well, if you know anything about the sophisticated British, they don't put horsepower. And the guy didn't know. He said, I don't know the answer, but I'll find out. You just hold that money right where it is, and I'll find the answer. He went to the owner of the, owner of the, owner of the car dealership. He said, there's a man who wants to buy that Rolls Royce, has $60,000 in his hand, but he wants to know how many horsepower it has. The guy said, I don't know. Doesn't really matter. He said, doesn't matter. He's not going to buy that car. We're not going to get his money until he knows how many horsepower. He said, I'll find out. Tell him to hold that money right where it is. He wired London, and the teletype came back. The man had gone home. The teletype came back. He ripped it off the teleprompter, tele, uh, or whatever you call it. He said, yeah, you get it out there right now before that boy finds some other place spend that $60,000. He went out to the house with that teletype in his hand, knocked on the door. He said, I found your answer. Handed him the teletype. He opened it up. It was one word. 
How many horsepower does that Rolls Royce have? Adequate. How much is it going to take for us to be what God wants us to be? Well, how much does God have? He has one word, adequate. He'll never let you down. One last thought. He'll never let you go. Sometimes I have lapses of memory. The more I get gray hair here on the side, the more, the more it is easier it is for me to forget. I have lapses of memory. All of us do. I'll tell you something, though, that you'll never forget. You probably, if, if you were alive and you were old enough to know it, I, I, can, I, I can, I imagine that everybody here this morning can tell me exactly where you were and what you were doing the day President Kennedy was assassinated. Can't you? I was walking down the halls of Southwestern Seminary, going to the library where I worked, when the news came over the radio. I'll never forget it. You know why we remember that? Because it was a crisis time in our life, in the life of our nation. It's just burned into our memory. Now, David had died, and Solomon was taking the throne. It was a critical time. I heard about a man who went to the barber shop. He got, a, got him a haircut, and he was getting a shave and a manicure. And the manicurist was so pretty. She was really attracted. He was attracted to her. He said, uh, young lady, why don't you go out with me tonight? And she said, I can't go out with you. I'm married. He said, that doesn't matter. Just tell your husband you're working late and go out with me. She said, you tell him. He's shaving you right now. <laughs> now that, 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 that's a critical time. <laughs> that, that is indeed a critical moment. Now Solomon stood at this critical moment. Let me tell you what he told him. He said, I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds you. This is a critical time in my own life. I don't know how I feel about this day. I've been trying to put it all together. This is a critical time in the life of our church. I don't know what is out there. I don't know what it holds, but I know who holds me, and he'll never let me go. I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities our powers, or things present or things to come shall be able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. I want to tell this illustration. These college kids heard it this last week. But it so finishes up what I want to say. Would you listen? pastor of the First Methodist Church in San Antonio, Texas, father left him an inheritance. He left him a large sea fishing, deep fishing, sea fishing operation. So he leased it out with this stipulation that two weeks out of the year 
he wanted to go down and take those ships out, take people out deep sea fishing. On the 4th of July, four years ago, this minister was out in the Gulf and they harpooned, they hooked a dolphin. Now it's against the law in the first place. They didn't want one. You don't hook them. And, and so they tried to release it, get it off their line, their hook, they couldn't. All morning long they struggled trying to get that dolphin freed, couldn't. And he said it was getting to be critical. They could cut the line, but the hook in its mouth would kill it. They had to get that hook out. And he said about that time a female dolphin came to the surface and stood up on her tail and looked into our fishing boat as if to say, for God's sake, can't somebody help us? The only way they could get that hook out was to pull that boat up beside that dolphin and that dolphin to come to the top of the water so they could reach out with their hands and remove it. It's the only way they could get it out. Dolphin don't do that. But he said about the time they were ready to give up, a phenomenon of nature occurred. He said that dolphin came right up to the top of that water, rolled over on his back, and waited for us to remove the hook. And he said, very skillfully and carefully, we moved that boat over the side of that dolphin. And he said, I reached out and got that hook, and I worked it till finally I worked it free. And he said, that dolphin stood on his tail and stared into my eyes for what seemed like an eternity was about five, ten seconds. And we just kind of stared at each other. And the dolphin submerged and left. And the preacher said, the way to be free is to put yourself in the hand of the captain who will never let you go. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you're a God who never lets us off. We made a commitment to you and that commitment doesn't stop with the building of a building. It's just the beginning. We thank you that you're a God who never lets us down but meets every need every day as it comes. Most of all, you never let us go. We want to put ourselves in your hands today. Put our church in your hands. Beautiful, glorious, wonderful church. We want to be free. Free from anxiety and worry and sin and intimidation and defeat. Here I am, I surrender all. Now look this way. There are three responses. I sense from the message of this young man, I sensed in your face something unusually, unusual happening. There may be some this morning who, right now, who, who want to come Put your hand in the hand of the Lord. 
maybe to give your heart and life to Jesus for your salvation. You've, you've sinned against God. You're lost and separated from Him. You want to come to be saved. To join the church. To rededicate your life to Christ. Would you do it right now? While we stand to sing, would you come?